At Emory University's Goizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goizueta Effect. I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goizueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Wes Longhofer. We'll be discussing business and the critical role it can play in driving societal change. Wes is the Associate Professor of Organization and Management and Executive Academic Director at the Roberto C. Goizueta Business and Society Institute. His work has been funded by the National Science Foundation and featured in the Washington Post, American Sociological Review, and the American Journal of Sociology. Most recently, he co-authored the book, Super Polluters, Tackling the World's Largest Sites of Climate-Disrupting Emission. Welcome, Wes. Hey, Melanie. Thanks so much for having me. So when we talk about business and its impact on society, we hear a lot of terms. Conscious capitalism, corporate responsibility, social enterprise. What do you feel is business's role in driving positive societal change? I think that's a great place to start, Melanie. Um, and let's begin with the obvious. Business and capitalism in particular is a tremendous engine of prosperity and innovation. It provides jobs, you know, countless goods and services that have undoubtedly made our lives better. But we're also living in an incredibly challenging time. Right, climate is in crisis, there's mounting inequality, political polarization seems to be at a peak, not to mention an ongoing pandemic that's shown us the power of business to urgently create a vaccine, but also raises important questions about the equitable distribution of it. And recognizing the role of business to, in driving positive social change begins with acknowledging that there is no business without society. Too often we think of markets as existing outside of people and, so, and the society that comprises them. No market can exist without a society that sets the rules of the road, without a government that sets up things like property rights, or without an environment that provides natural resources that, if exploited, will threaten the ability of the market to function. So if we start by recognizing that business exists in society, that markets are designed by people, in the interest of people, then we can begin to think about how to reimagine business to redesign those markets to serve both more of society and the natural world. It's about recognizing business not just as economic actors, but as civic and environmental actors as well. So how can business do this? Well, traditionally, business would do this uh, in the context of, or under the purview of corporate social responsibility, which historically served either a philanthropic or a marketing function in most companies. But more and more, we're seeing companies that are embedding a sense of purpose throughout the organization, from the C-suite to the entry-level employee. Business and society also encompasses the conscious capitalism movement, which is really at the executive level, as well as social entrepreneurs looking to start a business with a social mission, as well as all sorts of new organizational models that are challenging what a successful business is supposed to look like, such as B corporations and co-ops. Another thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that the relationship between business and society is reciprocal. Um, it's about trust, it's about working together. Traditional forms of corporate social responsibility are more about a sense of ethical obligation or about that sort of warm glow of philanthropy. And I think a more respectful way to think about business and society relationship is one based on mutual trust and respect for and cooperation with one another. You've talked a about a lot of different uh, stakeholders involved in uh, a business, and obviously a business is a dynamic ecosystem. 
What specific groups and stakeholders need to be engaged to make this approach successful? Stakeholder capitalism is messy, right? Kind of by design. Um, We can think of the primary stakeholders of a firm as the employees, customers, investors, the firm itself, the community in which the firm is located. Um, That only scratches the surface. There's also government, the media, social movements, competitors, um, and the earth itself. So how do you make sense of this and which stakeholders matter the most? And I hate to say it, but the classic professorial answer is it depends. So I'll give you one exercise that my, I had my students do on the first day of class. So there's this idea um, in philosophy called uh, what we call moral circles. So think of your level of concern for others as a set of concentric circles. You hold those that you have the most concern for in the circles that are closest to you. And the ones that with less concern rest in circles further and further out. So for me, my level of concern is highest for my wife and daughters. So I keep them closest in my moral circle. But I also have concern for my friends, for my neighbors, for my students and colleagues, for people who I've not even met yet. And those people occupy different circles closer and further from me. So I have students draw their own moral circles in class. And then I ask them, what does the moral circle of a company look like? And this is tricky, right? Because you think about, okay, companies are big organizations. So students will often say that shareholders should be in the closest circle. Um, And that raises all sorts of additional questions to unpack. What if the company is private? Should institutional investors occupy the same circle as individual investors? What happens if one of those institutional investors, like BlackRock, writes a letter saying we need to divest from fossil fuels and you are a manufacturer in a state that relies a lot on coal power? How do you think about those stakeholders in in, in that context? Students will then usually bring up the board, right? And they'll hold the board close. And then it's usually employees. But again, lots of questions come up. Do all employees occupy the same position? What if some employees have been with the company for 10 years and others have been with the company for 10 weeks? What if your company recently automated or outsourced some jobs? Do those former workers still fall in your moral circle? What if your employees are represented on the board of the company? And so on. And this goes on and on until students start to think about consumers, competitors, suppliers, all ask questions like, where would you put the United Nations, the Black Lives Matter movement, your third tier suppliers? Where would you put millennials? It's a helpful exercise in thinking about who falls in a company's circle of concern. And it gives us a chance to ask what pushes a company to expand its level of concern, right? Something like a movement for racial justice and what pulls a company more inward, like a recession. And a big piece of what pushes a company out or pulls them in is the culture of the company, right? Is the company guided by a higher purpose um, that may make their circles of concern more expansive Or is the company a private family-owned company with a reputation for being a good corporate citizen in their local community? Is the company more about satisfying customers and growing as quickly as possible? In short, the culture of a company is going to play a big role in stretching or contracting those circles of concern. And then the culture of society around it also plays a role in contracting or expanding those circles. Let's talk a little bit about history. Is this concept a new one, or have we seen elements of this philosophy throughout time? Well, it's interesting. When I got to the business school, um, I had to teach myself a lot of this history myself. So I was curious where these ideas come from about uh, stakeholders and corporations giving back and shareholder theory, et cetera. And so in class, we go back uh, almost two centuries. And we say, okay, we're going to go back to the, let's start with the American Revolution. Um, And then we read an alternative history that describes the Boston Tea Party as the first anti-corporate protest in the United States, as colonial merchants protested the attempt by the East India Company to vertically integrate and squash local commodity markets. By starting then, we realized that the relationship between business and society has always been 
intention, right? And there's this constant push and pull between business and society throughout history, right? From the expansion of the railroads to the growth of US steel to the creation of the automobile. And in the post-World War II period, there was this idea that companies would provide jobs, not just for a few years, but for an entire career. They provide opportunities for mobility over the life course. They give you pensions, they would employ not just you, but a lot of your friends. They would sponsor your kid's baseball team in the local college. And a handful of large corporations really shaped and defined not just business in America, but civic life as well. It was also a time of momentous social movements, right, in the US that raised awareness of things like civil rights, environmental degradation, that was coupled with transformative public policy in these areas. But a problem with those companies was that they were not very profitable. So in the late 1970s, 1980s, um, investors decided it might be better to break up those companies. And managers were a problem because companies were trying to do too much. It's what organizational scholars call the garbage can theory of decision making, that you, um, you throw a bunch of strategies at the wall uh, with you know, ill-defined goals. And so some said, well, maybe managers should just focus on maximizing profit rather than getting involved in all these other distractions. And very quickly, the idea of a company started to change. Employees started to spend less time in any particular company. Ownership became more centralized. Companies began to invest more in financial markets and less in, less in their own assets in R&D. And managers were compensated for maximizing profit. And things like pollution were seen as externalities. Well, and I like this idea, too, of bringing the onus back down in some ways to the managerial level. Uh, if you have a company that's guided by focused values, for instance, that's a good barometer for managers to use in their everyday work. Yeah, and it really is about leadership, right? And so if you look at all these recent surveys of employees and consumers, overwhelmingly, like, like it's amazing. There's a recent survey that came out today in Georgia, 91% of employed Georgians want their CEOs to take a stance on social issues, 91%. That's a huge majority. And so I think it's this sort of growing expectation that we want our companies to be good civic actors. We want them to be good political and environmental actors um, because that's what our customers are pushing for and that's what our employees want. So we, we've talked a little bit about history, but if we look at where companies are today, are there good role models in this sphere? Are there companies that are really doing it well? And what sort of lessons can be applied to businesses out there who might want to do the same thing? So there are a lot of companies that are doing this well. The tricky thing is understanding why they're doing it well and then replicating them. So I tell my students that the literature on what we'll call shared value or um, on corporate purpose has a Malcolm Gladwell problem, right? So Malcolm Gladwell describes these two critiques you always get. Either he cherry picks his data or he states the obvious. And the irony is he can't do both. You can't cherry pick data in order to state what everybody knows. Um, in the business and society world, this means we often hear about the same examples that almost seem too good to be true. Unilever, for example, was able to certify its tea as sustainable and increase its market share. Walmart was able to cut emissions from its trucking fleet and save millions in fuel expenses. And these are powerful examples to be sure. But you could also argue that these are just really good business decisions. And what about all the examples of companies led with purpose or ethical products that fail? We do have a few companies in which purpose is deeply embedded across the organization. Um, Patagonia is the obvious one that comes to mind. They have a deep commitment to sustainability in their supply chain. They work with industry partners to establish certifications that help verify that sustainability. And they use their platform to take bold social and political stances that are aligned with their mission. 
and in doing so, they make it easier for competitors to also be more sustainable. Another example of a company with purpose embedded throughout the company is Ben & Jerry's. They took perhaps one of the boldest stances on racial justice last summer by outlining specific steps that need to be taken to dismantle white supremacy. Chris Miller is their, activi uh, their activism manager, which is not a position that you oftentimes see in a company's org chart. Um, he previously worked at Greenpeace and has described how the marketing department at Ben & Jerry's just gives him greater reach than an NGO ever could. Of course, Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's have loyal customer bases. That makes it courageous action no less important, but perhaps a little easier. We have lots of examples of companies here in Georgia. Um, Interface uh, figured out a way to make carpet more sustainably through the visionary leadership of Ray Anderson. Rubicon is a B corporation that's trying to rid the world of waste through technology. Delta committed a billion dollars to become carbon neutral and recommitted to that uh, throughout the, the pandemic. And one of my favorite local companies, Creature Comforts, I'm a big beer guy, is doing amazing community work through their Get Comfortable campaign. So there are lots of examples of companies reimagining what it means to create value and make an impact. But it's not easy. Um, another company I love to teach about is uh, Danon, the French food and beverage company. Um, they made a splash by certifying their North American subsidiary as a B Corporation, which opened the door for bigger public multinational companies to do the same. They then started doing things like adjusting their earnings per share for the price of carbon and doing other things to embed sustainability throughout the organization. But purpose is hard to scale in a company that large. And in March, their CEO, Emmanuel Faber, who was instrumental in this shift, was asked to resign due to pressure from activist shareholders concerned about Dannon's financial performance. So I think it's important to, to lift up examples of companies taking bold action, but also recognize that sometimes harsh business realities that they're working under. Society seems to be super leaned in and engaged in social movements. We see Black Lives Matter, Me Too, climate change, voting rights, all at the forefront of discussion. What role do these movements play in urging businesses to take a stand? I think a lot of it has to do with things that, something that businesses aren't always comfortable with. And that's the idea of accountability. Right? It's one thing for a company to make a statement on a social issue, but these movements want to know, you know if they really mean it. Are they putting resources toward that issue? Are they thinking about their own biases, their own practices that may have played a role in creating the very problem that movements are concerned about? And it's getting harder and harder for companies to stand by. So take, for example, companies that took a stance on the recent voting law in Georgia. In that case, you had communities likely to be disproportionately affected by a law calling on companies to lock arms and stand up for justice. And companies that failed to do so were called out, right? And they later changed their mind. And these kinds of movements, such as boycotts, can have, a, can have an effect on the reputation of a company or even its board. There's recent research that finds that board, boycotts can lead some board members to step down from a company if they are aligned with the politics of the boycott. And that can affect leadership and board decision making. Companies are finding themselves like, in this really you know, kind of strange position where they're being asked to make the moral case when they are more comfortable making the business case. Does that mean that every company should take a stance on every moral issue? Of course not, right? Doing so would create its own risk. Um, it's unlikely that everyone within a company would agree, but companies are likely to find themselves in this position again and again. And while companies are worried about losing money, if they take a stand, I'm not so sure that they will. Remember um, a few years ago, uh, Nike had their Colin Kaepernick ad, right? So you have people burning their Nikes on Twitter. Um, and there was concern, this is gonna affect the sales of Nike. Well, sales of Nike grew 10% that year. Um, they knew that it'd be good for the business. So when we look at consumers, there's a recent Nielsen report that shows 43% of them say they would prefer to spend more 
on products and services that support worthwhile causes. So are you seeing that play out in their purchasing behavior? Uh, yes and no, right? So um, a quick trip to the grocery store will reveal a cornucopia of labels telling you about which products are better for the environment, which ones are better for your health, which ones protect workers, which ones are better for the birds, and which ones are better for the frogs. Um, you, there are dozens of new fashion companies that make claims to a more ethical supply chain. I have an appointment on Saturday to get an estimate to put solar panels on my house, not because we actually we get a lot of sun. Um, in fact, one question the company had for me is if I wanted to cut all the trees down in my backyard so that we could actually put solar panels in, but more because I want to live my values and so I want to see what the options are. So there are plenty of examples of options of companies meeting some kind of demand for sustainable and ethical choices. Are we seeing evidence of this uh, in purchasing behavior? Yes and no, right? The products are increasing their market share. Millennials seem particularly interested, but aren't the ones actually buying these products. Instead, research suggests it's mostly um, older women. And despite the availability of options, a number of things get in the way of shopping your values. Um, so what keeps consumers who would otherwise shop ethically from doing so? A big challenge is a lack of information. So I mentioned there are more than 100 different labels that tell us about the ethical or sustainable impact of a product. Um, but it's really hard to verify some of those claims. Right? There's a lot of greenwashing. This is bad marketing that misstates the environmental benefit of a product. Um, it's not clear that we process all of this information. Right, So habit kind of comes into play, particularly for cheap products. There's also research that suggests that when we make a moral de a decision in our purchasing, we're more likely to uh, offset that decision by doing something bad later. So the classic study is um, uh, shoppers who take their own grocery bags to the grocery store are more likely to fill it with junk food. And it's the idea of moral licensing, that we're sort of walking this line of moral good and bad. And then another thing that complicates all of this is the issue of identity. Right? So some of this is tied to social class. Sustainable products are usually more expensive, and they're not available to everyone. So how does your own identity play out in purchasing, and do you find um, being sustainable, making ethical purchases to be challenging yourself? Yeah, it is, it is hard, right? Because all these things that make it hard for consumers, lack of information, buying out of habit, issues of identity and class, I experienced that as well. So students will oftentimes assume that I consume ethically all the time, right? Because I teach the business and society class. So I shudder when they see me at the grocery store, right? So I recently was at the grocery store, a student saw me, and I had um, a big box of Fruit Loops in my uh, grocery cart. And this um, all started, there's nothing wrong with Fruit Loops, first of all, right? But they don't make any claims to be good for the environment, or I have no idea how they're produced. Um, but uh, we, we started buying Fruit Loops because my older daughter had used them in a math project at school, right? To sort and count and learn how to make bar charts. So she kept asking me, Dad, can you get Fruit Loops? Can you get Fruit Loops? So I wanted to encourage her interest in math. So I get the Fruit Loops and bring them home. Well, now the problem is that my two year old is obsessed with Fruit Loops, right? So every morning, and, and my two-year-old is very, very smart. So every morning she says, Dad, can I have Fruit Loops? And I'll say no. And then she'll say, well, can you make me banana pancakes? And she knows I'm not going to make her banana pancakes like on a Tuesday morning when I'm trying to get ready for work. So then I give her the Fruit Loops. And so I will probably continue buying Fruit Loops until I can get her distracted on and onto some other new product. And that's just because I'm a dad, right? And that identity is important too. Um, and that, that also shapes my consumption pattern. So I think what it means for companies is uh, – I think there is a growing movement for ethical and sustainable consumption. I don't think consumers alone are going to change company behavior, right? I, I, because of all these other, we, you know, we're fickle, uh, um, and we, it's hard to rely upon big consumer movements for some of these products. And so I think some of this leadership has to come from the company. 
So if we look ahead to the future, specifically how a new generation coming in to lead our workforce is going to shift things, uh, what do you think millennials and Gen Zers are going to bring? Um, what sort of things are they going to expect from their businesses and what ways are they going to lead themselves? I think this is a really important question. And this, is, this is why I love my job. Um, so in the Business and Society Institute, we believe that we have an opportunity and an obligation to educate and prepare future business leaders to take the best of business and create so positive social and environmental change. But I think it's important to recognize that our students have been clamoring for ways to use their business education for good long before we established this institute. Hundreds of students take our classes every year because they believe the power of business but want business to do more. And most, of, most but not all of our students are not going to the nonprofit sector to do this work. Instead, they're going to our top consulting and investment firms, Fortune 500 companies, and our best graduate professional schools. And I think a lot of change can come from our students entering the workforce. So I'll give you another story. So a few years ago, the Dalai Lama visited my business and society class, right? It's this amazing opportunity. I'm incredibly grateful to Emory for, for making it happen. And one of the questions my students asked was, what do I do if my values don't match the values of my company? And the Dalai Lama essentially gave two options. You could leave the company or you could change the company from within. Find other people who share your values, begin to build a culture that is aligned with your own sense of purpose. I tell my students this story because it means that they should not have to wait to make an impact, that they can be a change maker from wherever they sit. And our students are like sharp, like super sharp. Uh, and by and large, they want their companies to lean into these issues that go beyond profit survey I mentioned earlier. Found that 91% of employed Georgians expect CEOs to take a stand on important social issues. The challenge that many of our students face is that they're going to work for big organizations. And working in big organizations is hard. I've written countless recommendation letters just this year for students looking to switch careers, go back to school. And sometimes the issue of purpose, or rather a lack of purpose, comes up. I think one of the greatest challenges facing business is how can we build a workplace with purpose based on a culture of belonging, in which all of our employees can thrive and bring their full selves to work? Because if they can't figure this out, they're going to risk losing some of their best talent. I agree, and I think, you know, you talk about the longevity of workers, if they're willing to stay, are they willing to pull the long nights when they're needed to, and that sense of purpose is such a huge motivator. Is there any research around motivating employees and how important value is in there? A lot of the research on corporate social responsibility, connecting to performance, find that it finds, on average, investing in corporate social responsibility is not bad for performance. And there's probably a net positive from, you know, for, for, for doing CSR. The question is why? So why would corporate social responsibility be good for performance? It could be because consumers care about it, right? So maybe it um, increases sales. It could be that leadership cares about it. Um, it could be good for image, right? So good for marketing. Well, the real mechanism that tends to have reliable evidence is that it engages your employees, right? And employee engagement is good for all sorts of reasons. When you build a culture in which every employee believes in the mission and believes in the culture of the organization, they're more likely to, to speak positively about the organization. They may, uh, uh, morale will be greater. They might work a little harder. Um, and there tends to be positive benefit. Uh, and so that's why a lot of programs and big companies around social impact is really about employee engagement, right? It's it, the employee volunteer days, um, giving uh, employees time off to go vote. Like these things are all really important to build a culture within your company uh, and, and, and keep your employees engaged. 
So much of what we discussed today is central to the work you're doing within the Guisueta Business School. Can you talk a little bit about the specific programs, classes, and experiences that your students have here? Yeah, so um, the uh, the Business and Society Institute is the second phase of social impact work here at the Guisueta Business School. For 12 years, we had a social enterprise center, Social Enterprise Guisueta, and a lot of our current programs in the institute are actually legacy programs from that, that the social enterprise. So um, just last night, we had our Start Me graduation. Uh, it's, a, it's an awesome event, 45 entrepreneurs, three different communities had just completed a 14-week business program. Uh, we have a tremendous network of mentors. The whole goal of that program is to create opportunities for entrepreneurs and communities that lack these micro-businesses, uh, give them access to knowledge networks and capital. And it's a, it's a tremendous program uh, just to support micro-entrepreneurs. We also work a lot with coffee farmers uh, through my colleague Peter Roberts' work. And it's a sort of similar kind of ethic there. How can we do what we do well, which is teaching business and um, asking questions and provide opportunities for women coffee growers to gain access to better market opportunities. And so our students run workshops in collaboration with local partners for coffee growers, you know, help them with their storytelling, with their bookkeeping, um, with their negotiations, and help them get access to better prices for the delicious coffee that they grow. All of our programs begin with sort of a research puzzle, right? Because we're an academic research center. What do we want to know about the world? And how can we sort of take knowledge and insights and put them into action through these innovative programs? We also have a number of programs for our students. So we have the Social Enterprise Fellows. Um, that's a cohort of 20 to 25 MBA and BBA students that have a shared experience for their two years in the business school program. They get access to mentorship, stipends, opportunities to learn more about the social impact space here in Atlanta, um, uh, support if they go uh, to have a have an um, internship in the social sector over the summer um, to create some opportunities there. And it's just, you know, these are our change makers. These are where change is going to come from. It's going to be from, from our fellows. We also offer a number of courses. So I teach a business and society class um, for uh, BBAs and when I can also the, the MBAs. Um, that has hundreds of students every year. We have some experiential courses. Um, we have a philanthropy lab class. We've been teaching that for two years where students have between fifty dollars and $75,000 to donate to local nonprofits. Uh, we have our uh, Grounds for Empowerment program has a directed study piece to it so students can get credit for teaching these workshops. Peter's teaching a future specialty coffee class that's become a really popular elective in, uh, in the school all about the, the specialty coffee market. And we also have experiential opportunities. So um, before COVID, we would travel with students. I've taken students to visit garment factories in the Dominican Republic, coffee farmers, coffee farms in Central America, took students to Paris for the UN climate change negotiations. And so it's really about creating these opportunities for exposure through these big sort of business and society classes, as well as these deeper dives and experiential opportunities for students that want to learn more about this space. So you have a bit of an interesting background. You're a sociologist at heart and now a professor at Guizueta Business School. What drew you to this line of work and what inspires you most about what you're seeing play out in the classroom and with partners? Well, I'll be honest, I never thought I would end up in a business school until some of my colleagues asked me to apply for a job here. Um, but I've, I've loved it ever since I've gotten here. You know, I'm a sociologist. I'm always interested, I've always been interested in systemic problems and how people come together to solve them. And that's what sociology is all about. Um, but like many of us, I've been thinking about my own sense of purpose a lot lately. Um, and I think my purpose is to be an educator. 
right? To tell stories, help others make sense of the social world around them, the world that's filled with a lot of trauma, but also filled with a lot of beauty. I realized that I would now, I think I've always known this, I would be a terrible entrepreneur, right? And I'm learning how to be a manager, but I think I know how to teach and how to ask questions and find answers. Um, I'm also a dad, right? So people ask me, cause I, you know, I, I wrote a book on super polluters, right? It's all about the, the, the climate crisis. But ask me if I'm optimistic. And I say, well, I'm the dad of two young daughters. I have no choice but to be optimistic. And I see my job as an educator as also a responsibility to them, right? To ensure that they grow up in a world that values inclusion, compassion, and respect for the planet. And they can only do that if business steps up to help create that world. And I realize this puts unrealistic pressure on my students, right? As they need to create the world that I want for Harper and June. But I think they're up for the challenge. And if they fail, I promise that my girls will just blame dad for it and not them. And I'm okay with that. Wes Longhofer is the Associate Professor of Organization and Management and Executive Academic Director at the Roberto C. Goizueta Business and Society Institute. He joined us today to discuss business and the critical role it plays on shaping society. Thank you, Wes. Thanks so much for having me. For more information about the Goizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz podcast.